Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Kokato, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. We got a big day coming up on Tuesday. Jensen versus Walls. Schultz versus Ellison, control of the House, control of the Senate. Some of you are super fired up for what's going to happen on Tuesday. And some of you are like, I can't wait until we just have a regular Snickers commercial on my television. Well, that's why I thought, in light of what's coming on Tuesday, it would be especially appropriate to focus in on 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, as our key verse in our That's Not What That Means series. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Have you heard that verse? Well, here's the key question surrounding that passage. Uh, Does this passage apply to America? If we humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways, Will God heal our land? Well, that's why the title of this morning's message is, Will God Heal Our Land? But to answer that question, we need to understand this verse in context. That's what we've been trying to show through this series of that's not what that means, is to rightly understand a verse, we need to understand the verse in its context. And we said that there's four main areas of context that we need to understand, and there's historical context, what was happening around the time a verse was written. There's the grammatical context, what are the words and the phrases in a verse. There's the near context, what are the surrounding verses saying. And then there's the canonical or the full Bible context, what can we learn from all of Scripture about what this text means. And so to answer the question, what does Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 rightly mean for us as we correctly interpret it, we're going to rely heavily on the historical and full Bible canonical context this morning. We'll sprinkle in a little bit of the near context as well. Three main questions that we want to ask to kind of guide our survey through this verse. What did Second Chronicles mean then as it was written in Israel? What does Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 mean now in 2022? And What does 2 Chronicles 7.14 have to say about America? That sounds like an outline. So let's go ahead and jump in with the first question. What did 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 mean then? And we're going to see that 2 Chronicles 7.14 was a retribution principle and promise. So let's unpack that by starting with a wide-angle lens and looking at the book of 2 Chronicles as a whole. Then we'll zoom in to the surrounding near context, and then we'll finally laser focus in on three key words in the verse. So 2 Chronicles was written as a theological history of Israel. There are a few historical books in the Old Testament. Mainly, there's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Chronicles was different than Samuel and Kings, though they told uh, many of the same stories. And the reason for that is Chronicles tells why things happened the way things happened. Samuel and Kings are like, hey, this went down, this went down, this went down. And then the Chronicler comes in and he's like, this is why those things happened, because we're going to give God's insight into how things happened. 
And so originally those books, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, were all just one book individually in the Old Testament, but somebody decided those were a little too long, and so they split each of them into two for our reading enjoyment. Uh, Second Chronicles um, is the final book in the Hebrew order of the Old Testament. It's the ending of the Old Testament story when the book was compiled in its original Hebrew form. And the reason for that is because Chronicles ends with King Cyrus sending the nation of Israel back from exile, and it ends with a note of hope because the idea is if the people turn back toward God, there is always hope. That's the retribution principle and promise at work. Now, the main idea in Chronicles is, as I've said, retribution, that God rewards obedience and punishes sin and rebellion. And we see that primarily through the king. As goes the king, so go the people. Kings were blessed or judged depending on if they followed God or resisted God. If the king is evil, he is given retribution and punishment. But if the king repents, he can reverse the retribution that he has already received. Well, one example of that, just so that you understand what's happening in Chronicles, is King Manasseh. Now, when we read about Manasseh and kings, he's just a total putz. I mean, he does evil, gross wickedness, more evil than has ever been committed up to that point in the land of Israel. And the author of Kings is just like, this is a bad dude, and because of him, the people are going into exile, full stop. But then the chronicler tells his story and adds, oh wait, but at the end of his life, he repented, and God restored him to his throne for a time. Why does the chronicler feel the need to tell us about Manasseh's repentance? Because his whole purpose is to show this principle of retribution. If you sin, you're punished, but if you repent, your punishment gets reversed. That principle is set up at the beginning of Chronicles through the dedication of the temple, which is the near context to the verse we're looking at today. So we're going to start in chapter 6 for our near context survey and see that Solomon was praying to dedicate the temple. And I want you to see the, uh, the prayer he prayed. This is 2 Chronicles uh, 6, 26. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then he continues... Then, here in heaven, and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So do you see Solomon's prayer in the temple? He's like, God, we know that the retribution principle is at work. If we sin, you're going to cause pestilence, and you're going to cause famine. But if we repent, would you reverse the pestilence and the famine? So then we get to our section. And I want to start with the verse before our key verse. So I want to start in 2 Samuel, or I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13, where it says this. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, etc., etc. Do you see the connection between chapter 6 and chapter 7? Chapter 6, Solomon's like, hey God, will you respond if we pray in repentance? And chapter 7, God is speaking, and he says, yes, I will. 
God's people can pray in this newly dedicated place, the temple, and God will hear and God will heal. And now chapter 7, verse 14 is a conditional verse. If you do these things, God will do these things. So God says, if you do these four things, there's a four-part condition, then I will do these three things. So what are the four conditions that the people have? If my people humble themselves, an inner disposition that recognizes God is in control. I don't make the decisions. I don't call the shots. God is in power. If my people pray, a verbal expression of repentance and dependence on God. If my people seek my face, an inner loyalty, rejecting other gods or idols and pursuing God for who he is. If my people turn from their wicked ways, repentance is demonstrated in changed lives. So if my people show the fruit of repentance by living in repentance, God says, if you do those four things, I obligate myself, I commit myself God is here making a covenant commitment to his covenant people. I will do these three things. What will he do? I will hear hear your prayer. I will forgive your sin. And I will heal your land. Now, all that is pretty straightforward on the surface. What we need to do is zoom in to the words of this verse so that we can ask, who is this promise for? When God gave it at the temple dedication, when Solomon prayed and God said, I will do these things. And the three words that are going to help us understand who the promise is for are people, name, and land. And to understand who God's people are, what land belongs to God, and what name is God's, we have to look at the full Old Testament context. So who are God's people? Two verses from the Old Testament will help us see this. The first verse is, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7. God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Look also at Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. So God says, you're my people, I'm your God. Who is he talking to? The nation of Israel that he chose in love and rescued out of slavery in Egypt. So God's people are the ransom and redeemed from slavery nation of Israel. What is God's name? Exodus chapter 3 verse 15 tells us. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God shows up to Moses, and he says, this is my name, Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the God of the fathers of the nation of Israel. I am the eternally existent one. I am the one who sustains everything. I am And we know God's name throughout the Old Covenant as Yahweh, the God of Israel. So God has a people, the nation of Israel. God has a name, the God of Israel, the God who is. And there is a land for Israel, Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. 
Now Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to, uh, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Uh, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great sea, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. So God super specifically says, here are the geographical bounds of the land that I am giving to my people Israel, whose God I am. And he says, if you look at a map just east of the Mediterranean Sea, you can chart from the Euphrates River all the way to the Great Sea of the Mediterranean. That's your land. This land that we know of as the nation of Israel, that's your land. The people, the nation of Israel. The place, the land of Israel. The God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is a conditional covenant promise made to Israel, God's covenant people, to govern their life in the covenant land. Did that work? Did God keep his word when he said, if you do these things, I will come through and do these things? Yes, of course it worked. Let me give you an example. Daniel, while in exile in Babylon, prayed a prayer that was recorded in Daniel chapter 9. Listen to his prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. God says, if there is punishment and you pray, did Daniel pray? Yes. Did he humble himself? Yes. Does it sound like he's turning from wicked ways? Yeah. Does it sound like he's seeking God's face? Well, absolutely. So what was God's response to Daniel's prayer? Well, you've got to look ahead to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. God sends an angel to give Daniel God's answer. And the angel, telling Daniel God's word, says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Does that sound like the place, the land, is getting healed in response to Daniel's prayer? Yes, because God committed via covenant that if these four conditions were met, automatically, based on the principle of retribution, he would do these things for his people, and he did them. That's what that verse meant to Israel when they first received it. A lot of information, but I think fairly easy to understand. That leads us to our second question. What does that verse mean now for us as Christians? And I'm going to suggest to you that this is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in order to understand what this verse means for us now, we need to look at the change from the old covenant to the new covenant that took place through Jesus Christ when the Old Testament times changed into the New Testament times. What happened to the covenant God made with his people Israel? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us what happened to that covenant. 
Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The old covenant has been made obsolete because we have transitioned into a time of the new covenant. So the obligation that God took on himself to respond in a specific way to the specific prayers of a specific covenant people are voided because the covenant no longer is in existence the way it was. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't want you to think that God just was like, hey, you know what? Ain't done with that covenant. No, God didn't just cancel the covenant. He fulfilled the covenant. That's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God, that is, all the things that were promised to Abraham, to David, to the people of Israel in the Old Covenant, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. How were these promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ? How will God hear from heaven? By sending his son Jesus to live as a human being on earth. To walk among us living a perfect life. So that he who knew no sin could go to the cross. How will God forgive sin? In the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How will God heal our land? By making the entire earth into a new creation where sin no longer stains the ground, where death no longer dominates our existence. There will be a day when the earth will be remade into what it was originally intended to be in Eden, before the snake and sin messed it all up. And that happens because Jesus Christ won the victory over sin, the snake, and death on the cross. And in Jesus Christ, there is a bright future for the people of God. So hear this. We no longer need a promise that the cycle of sin and famine can be undone with repentance and prayer. Why? Because God's done something better. We don't need a prayer for a specific place east of the Mediterranean because God's healed the whole world in Jesus Christ. And one day, every inch of this universe that already belongs to him will bow the knee to his lordship. One day, this world will fully and forever be made into the perfect new creation that God intends. So let's ask this. How do we understand those three key words, people, name, and land, in light of the change from Old Covenant to New Covenant? Well, we have to look to the New Testament to define those terms instead of looking to the Old Testament to define those terms. Because what the terms meant have been transformed from a physical reality into a spiritual reality in Jesus Christ. So who are God's people? 
Well, the Apostle Peter tells us in the book he wrote, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter takes these terms that were applied to the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, and he applies them to the church, everyone who names the name of Jesus from any nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Because belonging to the people of God is no longer a matter of having Israelite DNA. It's a matter of having the spiritual DNA of faith in Jesus Christ. The people of God are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So we know who the people are now, but what is the name? Revelation tells us what the name is. Two verses from Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. A little more information in Revelation chapter 22, the final chapter in all of Scripture. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Here's the cool thing about the book of Revelation. The people of the world are marked with the image of the beast. The people of God are marked with the name of God stamped on their forehead. And the name that will be marked on our forehead for all eternity, I believe, is the name above all names. I believe it is the name that Paul says, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because of what Jesus did, therefore God gave him the name that is above every name. In the old covenant, God was known by his covenant name of Yahweh. But in the new covenant, God is known by the name Jesus because he has saved his people from their sins. One day the name of Jesus will be exalted above all. One day the name of Jesus will be worshipped and magnified. So the people are the church, those who have faith in Jesus. The name is the name of Jesus. Well, what's the land? We've already said the land is the entire earth, but let's prove it. Romans chapter 4 verse 13 tells us that the new creation is the entire earth because it says the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that they would be heir of the world. Not heir of a little plot of land in Israel, heir of the entire world. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11.10 that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. So when Abraham was headed toward the promised land, he wasn't just marching toward Israel, he was marching toward Zion, which is the worldwide new creation city. The whole world becomes a city, New Jerusalem. We talked about that in Isaiah, didn't we? And the whole earth becomes the place where God will meet with his people. So, the promise of forgiveness in response to repentance and healing is fulfilled not in a specific promise to a specific people in a specific place in the Old Covenant, but to a specific people the new covenant people of God, the church, who name a specific name, Jesus Christ, and who are headed to a specific place, the land that God has prepared. How does the promise of God working in response to our repentance 
play out in the new covenant? John tells us in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, by the way, this is a super better promise than God gave to Israel. Because remember in Israel, he said, if you do these four things, I'll forgive your sin and heal your land. What does he say here? He says, if you confess your sins, I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness, even the stuff you didn't even know you were supposed to confess, even the stuff you forgot about, even the stuff you didn't even realize was blocking your relationship with God. God's like, because of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, I will purify your heart to be a place where my spirit can live in holiness. I'm going to completely clean you up. The promise is transformed as it's transferred from Israel to the church. So hear this. The nation of Israel was not the church. But the church receives all the promises that Israel was originally supposed to receive. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the perfect Israelite. He kept the law when Israel couldn't. He made sacrifice when Israel couldn't. He was a light to the nations that Israel couldn't be. And Jesus received the inheritance of new creation that Israel forfeited because of their sin. And then Jesus turns around and adopts us into his family. And so we don't receive the promises because we're great. We receive the promises because Jesus is great. And by grace, he's adopted us into his family. And that's why we can say we're part of the new Israel of God. Because Jesus is true Israel and he unites us to himself. So that's how these promises work for the new covenant people. But that leads us to our third and final question. Can we apply the promise of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 to America? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal whatever land they happen to be living in, which for us is the United States of America. So can we just say, God, we're your people, so you got to heal the place we're living? Is this promise transferred to America? Let me answer that for you up top. No. No, 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 no. Maybe it would be helpful for you if I answered it in Spanish. No. Why do I say that? Three reasons that I say that. Here's the first reason. The new covenant is made with the church, not any specific nation. Here's the new covenant. We get the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. But behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And you're like, okay, but he says he's making a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, so how does that apply to the church? And here's why. Because if you look at those verses from Jeremiah, the author of Hebrews repeats them word for word in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm not going to read them again, but if you look up Hebrews 8, 8 through 13, it's literally just quoting these verses. And what's the point? That the promise that was given to Israel was through Jesus Christ transferred to the church. And so the new covenant belongs to the new Israel, those who belong to Jesus Christ, the true Israel. So the new covenant was not made with France, Germany, China, Russia, America. It was made with the church. So we cannot claim a national promise from the old covenant 
when we have a higher spiritual promise in the new covenant. Which leads me to my second point. America is not in covenant relationship with God. Israel had specific covenant promises for their nation that we don't share. Did you know this about Alaska? Did you know that if you live in Alaska, they have what's called the permanent fund dividend? They have so much oil in their state economy, be, uh, so much money from oil in their state economy, that every year they cut a check to every resident who lives in Alaska. So this year, it's about $3,200 that every person, I mean, you could be one day old all the way until uh, your elderly days. Anyone who is a resident of Alaska, they're going to wake up one day this year and have $3,200 show up in their bank account. That sounds like a good reason to move to Alaska. Do you know the problem with Alaska's permanent fund dividend? You actually have to live in Alaska to receive it. I can't just sign up to be a resident of Alaska and keep living here. And so as much as it would be nice to receive that money in my bank account, there are three words that tell you why I will not ever move to Alaska. And those three words are ice, ice, baby. The weather is a problem. I'm not living there. You can keep your frozen tundra. You can keep your snow. You can keep your zero sunlight in the winter. I'm not going there. But because I am not a resident of Alaska, I do not share in the benefits of being a resident of Alaska. In the same way, we are not members of Old Covenant National Israel, so we cannot say that we share in the covenant promises of Old Covenant National Israel. We share in the promises made to the church, not the promises made under the Old Covenant. But there are some who would argue, well, America is in a covenant relationship with God because the nation was founded by Christian men that established Christian principles. And so because we were founded by Christian men who had Christian principles, we therefore are a Christian nation in covenant with God. Two problems with that. Problem number one is you can't force God to be in a covenant with you. God makes covenants. Every covenant God made with Abraham, with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, with David, God showed up and made the covenant. In fact, the covenants God made were modeled on the covenants that were made by kings in that era. They were called suzerainty vassal treaties. Suzerainty means king, right? The king would make a covenant agreement with the nations over which he was ruling. And the covenants would say, I do these things, you do these things, and that's our covenant. We each have obligations. But the king makes the covenant, and God is our king. We don't get to be like, hey, God, we wrote up a covenant. We need you to sign on the bottom line here. No, God makes a covenant. And, and that leads us to our second problem. If God had made a covenant with America, he would have had to reveal it to us somewhere. And so where in the world do people who think that we're in a covenant relationship with God think that God wrote his revelation that we're in a covenant with him? You know what the answer is? And this is actually kind of tragic. Some people say that God revealed that he's in a covenant with us in the U.S. Constitution. Did you know? There was a survey conducted earlier this year in 2022. 19% of Americans and 37% of white evangelicals. So statistically, some of you might believe this. I hope you walk out of here not believing that. 37% of white evangelicals believe that the United States Constitution is divinely inspired. Can I tell you what the problem with that is? If you believe something is divinely inspired, it can't have any mistakes in it. 
We believe scripture is inspired. Every word of this book is true. I don't have to back down from it. I don't have to shy away from it. And I can proclaim it because it comes from God himself. There is no moral error in God's word as it is rightly interpreted and meant to be lived out. Not so with the U.S. Constitution. Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 establishes the three-fifths compromise. Remember what that is? We wanted to make slavery okay, so slaves count as three-fifths of a person. That is a gross moral evil. And you cannot claim that a document that promotes gross moral evil is divinely inspired. Am I grateful for our Constitution? Absolutely. Do I believe it's perfect and divinely inspired? Absolutely not. You know who teaches that the U.S. Constitution is divinely inspired? The Mormons. They've taught it since 1833. Christians historically have never believed that we live in a nation that is in covenant with God. And we cannot fall into that error because God deals with nations in his sovereignty, not via covenant obligation. This has always been the case even back when Israel had the covenant and other nations didn't. In the book of Habakkuk, God raised up the nation of Babylon to send Israel into exile. The problem was that Babylon was more wicked than Israel was. And so the people in Israel, or Judah in that case, were like, God, why are you using a nation more wicked than us to punish us? And God's like, because I'm sovereign. And God handles nations in his time, in his way, to fulfill his purpose. Eventually, Babylon was going to get what was coming to them, but not immediately. See, Israel had this retribution uh, principle. If they sinned, immediately God punished them in the land. No other nation had that. So Babylon could sin for a while, and God would punish them when he got around to doing it in his time and in his way and for his purposes. Now, there are general principles for how God deals with the nations. I'll give you two of them from the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 is a general principle. It says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Generally, God exalts nations who choose what is right, but not always. He doesn't have to. Do do, do you see the difference? He obligated himself via the covenant with Israel that he had to do these things. With the other nations, he did it when he wanted, why he wanted for his purposes in world history. Amos chapter 2, verse 1 is interesting. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, so here's a nation that's not Israel that was sinning, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So Edom wasn't Israel either. And so here's a non-Israel king harming another non-Israel king, and God's like, you will eventually pay for that because generally God punishes wickedness. But God does not have obligation to reward obedience immediately or to punish unrighteousness immediately with any current nation, nor did he ever have that with any nation except his chosen people of Israel. God deals in sovereignty. Here's the key verse that tells us this. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Of all the verses, if you want a verse to kind of encapsulate what we're saying this morning, highlight this one in your Bible, underline it in your Bible. If you're sitting next to somebody that doesn't like to write in their Bible, you can highlight it in their Bible for them. It's an important verse. Here's what Daniel says, Daniel 2.21. God changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. As a non-covenant nation, America exists at God's pleasure and will 
to accomplish God's foreordained purposes. We have no claim to God's retributive promises made to Israel under the old national covenant. Will God generally honor righteousness? Will God generally punish rebellion? Yes. Is God under any obligation to make America great if we repent? No. God is using America for his purposes, and he knows what those purposes are. So we humble ourselves, and we trust his sovereignty. The only covenant promises that God is obligated to fulfill to us are the covenant promises made to Jesus Christ and shared with us as the church of Jesus Christ. That is why, as Christians, we do not need nor do we endorse Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, according to Paul Miller, who belongs to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, here's a definition. Christian nationalism means that America was founded as a Christian nation and that the government should take steps to keep it that way so that Christians enjoy a privileged position in the public square. That's Christian nationalism. That we started as a Christian nation, we need to stay a Christian nation, and Christians have more rights than non-Christian citizens. I feel like the idea of Christian nationalism has been around for several decades. I remember in the 1990s, there was a dude named Carmen. Do you guys remember him? He was a musical artist, and he had one of those songs, and I, I hesitate to call it a song because, like, he talked, but then he, he would talk and talk, and then he would sing the chorus, and, and the chorus of his song, America Again, went like this. The only hope for America is Jesus. The only hope for America is him. If we repent of our ways, stand firm and say we need God in America again. And then in his talking point, he was like, America will not last the decade if we do not turn back to Jesus Christ. But he said that in 1992, and so I'm not sure what he thinks happened. Um, here's the thing. We don't need an ode to Christian nationalism. We don't need to establish a national religion we don't need to say that we are a Christian nation. Why? Three reasons. Three reasons. The first reason is the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to be striving to become a Christian nation. Three verses. John 18, 36. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not making a group of people to live in a specific geographical place and say, this is my chosen group of Christian people, nor does God need us to establish a Christian place for him. Jesus Christ will one day make the whole universe subservient to his lordship and rulership, and he is establishing a people who belong to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I grateful for the blessings of liberty that I have as a citizen of the United States? Absolutely I am, but my greater loyalty belongs to my greater Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And that is why I have more in common with a persecuted brother or sister in China, with a suffering brother or sister in the Sudan, than I have with a non-believer who lives down the street because they might share my state address, but they do not share my eternal address. And Jesus is preparing an eternal people to live in an eternal place. And that's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
exile. The people left Egypt but wandered in exile for 40 years until they got to the promised land. The nation of Israel was kicked out of their land and they were stuck in Babylon in exile for 70 years before God brought them back to the promised land. We have been brought out of the land of sin and death and suffering and we are headed toward the blessing of the new creation, but we're in that in-between place where we're not bound to where we were, but we're not yet where we're going. Jesus Christ is leading us home, and we are living as exiles here because our true home is up ahead. So we don't need to try and make this place home because it's not home. We don't need to try and make this place like heaven because we're going to the promised land. And hear this. If we try to endorse Christian nationalism, we end up having to resort to power to make it happen. Because there will always be people who don't want to live in a Christian nationalist society. And so we have to use the sword to compel them to obey. But the Bible tells me that the only sword I am called to use is the sword of the Spirit, which is the gospel of peace. Christian nationalism produces conformity but the gospel produces converts. And that's why we are called not to try and recreate society in the image of a Christian republic, but to see the Lord transform hearts into the remade image of God through the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel can do what Christian nationalism cannot do. Christian nationalism says obey or suffer. The gospel says I'm going to change your hearts so that you want to obey so that you don't have to suffer. You know, in Wales in 1904, there was an incredible national revival. People all over the nation of Wales got saved. In fact, uh, the historians tell us that so significant was uh, the result of this revival that the police officers had no crime to deal with because everyone was going to church every night for revival services. And so the police actually started forming quartets to sing at the church revival services just so they had something to do. And here's what I love about that. They didn't come and say, we're going to become a Christian nation. They shared the gospel, and God transformed people. And if you want to transform society, it begins by transforming individual hearts through the gospel. So what does this mean for Christian nationalism and Christians trying to engage in our culture? Paul Miller, who gave the definition about Christian nationalism, asks and answers this question. I think it's so important. The question is this, can Christians be politically engaged without being Christian nationalists? Listen to what he writes, yes, American Christians in the past were exemplary in helping establish the American experiment, and many Christians worked to end slavery and segregation and other evils. They did so because they believed Christianity required them to work for justice, but they worked to advance Christian principles, not Christian power or Christian culture. That's the key distinction between normal Christian political engagement and Christian nationalism. Normal Christian political engagement is humble, loving, and sacrificial. It rejects the idea that Christians are entitled to primacy of place in the public square or that Christians have a presumptive right to continue their historical predominance in American culture. Today, Christians should seek to love their neighbors by pursuing justice in the public square, including working against abortion, promoting religious liberty, fostering racial justice, protecting the rule of law, and honoring constitutional processes. That agenda is different from promoting Christian culture, Western heritage, or Anglo-Protestant values. Why? Because we believe that God, through the gospel, will establish something greater than we can establish if we try and force people to 
to live like Christians, even though they're not. And so I end with this. Nothing that happens on Tuesday will change who I am. Nothing that happens on Tuesday will change where I'm going. And nothing that happens on Tuesday will change who is on the throne. Because my God is sovereign. And even if it looks like in the short term I am losing some of the privileges that I enjoyed in the past, I can trust that God has a plan for this world that is driving it toward the new creation. And so I bow the knee not only to people who say they will enact policies that I like, but I bow the knee primarily to a Lord who is in control of everything, who is always God. That's why we can sing, our God is mighty to save. Only God will accomplish these things. God, help us to trust you. Help us to believe that no matter what is happening around us, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you've got a plan for where this world's going. We trust you and help us to work to advance the cause of the gospel for the transformation of hearts and lives for the betterment of our society. We pray that in Jesus' name the one who is mighty to save. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved. <laughs>